Hello, and welcome to Off the Cuff. I am your host, Chris Martinson, and on this program, every week, we are going to bring you a fascinating guest, where we are going to discuss the economy, energy, or the environment, informally and without a script. Welcome, and this week, I happen to have with me my good friend, Alistair McLeod, who is our European correspondent, as it were, from time to time. Alistair, welcome. Uh, thank you very much. It's very nice to be with you again, Chris. And, and where do we find you today? Are you in London? Uh, actually, I'm in the west country of England, uh, where the sun is shining and we're wilting in the heat. <laughs> I never thought I'd say that. <laughs> <laughs> I you, apparently, you had like a really miserably cold, wet uh, rest of the year, and now it's suddenly hot on you. Is that it? Well, we, uh, yes. I mean, winter carried on a bit longer than it usually does. But, you know, I mean, last year we had loads and loads of rain. And my rule of thumb is that when everybody gives up on the weather and they say, oh, we're never going to have a decent summer again, would you one, and I think that's what's happened. Well, I like the sound of that because I've just about given up on the idea that our markets are going to do anything rational uh, or, or uh, analyzable or fundamentally based. Because I'm looking at the markets today, so we're recording this. It's it's Wednesday. It's about 12 o'clock. Bernanke's just given his testimony, and the markets just went kind of haywire. The dollar is up. Stocks are up anyway. Oil is sort of pegged at 106. The treasuries didn't budge at all, and gold got monkey hammered. Uh, and, and none of this makes sense because as I listened to his testimony, I heard a man say, I will not back down. I am committed to print as much as it takes for as long as it takes until I see something and I can't quite tell you what it is. It's kind of like art. Precisely. I was exactly the same. I sat there listening to it and I just had one thought in my mind that here's a man who is completely committed to monetary inflation as a cure-all for everything. And yet, as you say, uh, gold suddenly got hammered uh, some way during his testimony and you sort of think... Someone's intervening here. This just isn't natural. And on that basis, I mean, there's nothing natural about it. And I guess that just when we've given up, rather like on the weather, thinking that it's ever going to turn, <laughs> turn in the right direction, right. suddenly we'll be caught off guard. But anyway, today, today I think you're right, Chris. I mean, it's just completely nonsensical. It's, it's illogical nonsensical. And I think there can only be one conclusion, and that is that there is massive official intervention going on in not just gold, but I think probably in a range of markets. Well, absolutely. I mean, silver sort of went along for that ride right there. And and the whole commodity complex has been bizarre. This is the first time we've had a QE effort where commodities actually generally drifted lower the whole way through, which is, which is kind of an odd thing. So you have to presume that the entire investing world has suddenly decided that with negative real interest rates, uh, one of the longest standing historical correlations was no longer something they wanted to speculate on, which is the idea that free money uh, delivered it uh, with negative real interest rates. It's a great time to be long commodities. And particularly when you look at the range of fundamental pressures that exist across the world for food, foodstuffs primarily, but yeah. some of the metals, uh, and particularly for energy as well. Uh, I mean, just to look at this one for a second, the conventional meme out there, certainly in my country, is just 24-7 coverage about the idea that peak oil is dead, uh, there's just gobs of oil coming out of the ground. The United States is about to, even foolish things, they say it's about to begin the largest exporter of oil, which is just silly talk. It will not be an exporter under any scenario that anybody can concoct at this point, <laughs> and, uh, and no matter how bullish they are on the whole story. But when you look at the world oil supply situation, you discover that it really hasn't grown at all in, in the last five to six years, and that's with some advances in the U.S., but the rest of the world is tailing off a bit. And that's with a doubling of investment over that same time frame from 300 to 600 billion a year. And so we have oil at 100 plus bucks a barrel and still 
you find commitments in Japan, U.S., Europe to the idea that we're about to return to robust growth. How's that? How's that story turning out so far? Well, it's, it's funny you should say that because we're getting exactly the same story on the mainstream media here. I mean, only last night I was listening to a BBC. It was, I think, it was the BBC News, and they were saying that uh, you know uh, shale oil in America and fracking and all the rest of it, and uh, they're going to be the second largest producer in the world uh, after Saudi Arabia in year. 2020 or so. I mean, you know, it's just, you sort of think, well, you know, this is all very well, but what's the cost of extracting it? I mean, I know there's technology, and then they're doing all the sort of high-pressure forcing gas out of cracks and all the rest of it. I mean, I don't know anything about the technology, but it does seem to me that this is going to be very costly oil or very costly gas, and it's not necessarily what we end up putting in our motor vehicles. But then I, I would defer to you, because I know this, this is an area you have studied. But I view the whole thing with suspicion, I must say. Well, part of the suspicion, well-founded, because there's been a, a concerted effort to, to really confuse and blur terms. So technically speaking, when we just look at crude oil, the United States is not going to become the second largest producer, I don't believe, anytime soon. Might make it to four, maybe three. But but uh, we also start lumping in natural gas liquids, which nobody puts in a, in a petrol tank and, and motors anywhere with, right? Yeah. They, they're used for other things. Don't get me wrong. Ethane, butane, pentane. These are useful substances, but primarily they're industrial in nature uh, and maybe heating. So those are its two uses, and uh, but not, not transportation. So they started lumping all this stuff in and said, look, you know, the United States is going to be number two. But they're really not at all comparable. And, and so I keep looking at this, and, and I can't tell if it's just a little bit of wishful self-delusion. Like, like this is just a, nobody wants to confront the idea that we'll have to be, start behaving differently. So uh, we say, yay, we don't have to think about this for at least 10 or 15 more years. Or, or if there's some more deliberate act of propaganda going on here. And, and certainly, I've detected many times uh, similarities in story content, phrasing, even whole paragraphs that I could identify from one news outlet to the next that started to read a little bit like PR collateral. You know, you, you develop yeah. a nice pitch for your client and you send it to a bunch of journalists and a few of them are lazy enough to, to copy it over wholesale into their article. And <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I, what you say is interesting because putting it in the context of uh, all the sort of, you know, the global warming and all that sort of stuff, it's interesting that, that uh, countries like the UK are very much behind on uh, their attempts to reduce their carbon emissions. Mm. And I just wonder to what extent government bought into the very weak concept of man-made, you know, sort of global warming uh, um, as, as an antidote, if you like, or as a means of trying to get the oil price up so that it would be rationed by price somehow and to get people to invest in alternative sources of energy. But now, of course, uh, we've got all this new energy, so-called, um, at whatever price. And um, I just wonder to what extent this is being promoted, if you like, because the idea of um, uh, alternative sources of energy are being proved to be completely fallacious. Well, it's, it's a big mixed bag. So the, the number one contributor to uh, total carbon that's going to go into the atmosphere is going to be coal. And we really only turn coal into electricity, uh, and that's its primary use. There's very, very tiny amounts of coal to liquids, but it's it's just nothing to talk about. 
And, and so realistically, if, if anybody really wants to uh, tackle that uh, carbon emission problem, they, they, they have to talk about electricity. And here's where if you wander over to China or you look at India, there, I believe there's somewhere in the vicinity of 1,200 coal-fired plants on the drawing boards to go in over the next decade uh, worldwide. And it's just an extraordinary amount. So anything you might conceivably do by raising the price of petrol by a buck or two a gallon or uh, you know, a few hundred pence a liter, however you want to measure it, uh, is going to do absolutely nothing realistically on the on the large scale about how much carbon goes in the atmosphere. So I was always suspicious of the carbon taxation schemes because it. it I was suspicious because Goldman was for it really strongly. Imagine <laughs> your experience is good enough reason. <laughs> That's automatic for me. They loved it. They thought it was a great idea, and they tried to wrap it up in some green stuff. And I'm like, God, you're just going to make more money at this, aren't you? This is going to be just another way to, to turn in record earnings, which uh, which the banks did again recently. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. No, I go along with that. Mind you, I mean, this, but the, one of the mysteries is that we've got all this extra supply, so-called, and yet the price is over 100 bucks. The price of petrol in the UK is just about hitting records. I mean, in the petrol station down the road from me, it's a hundred and between a hundred and forty pence a gallon. Uh, yeah. Sorry, a liter, a liter. Yeah. Um, and that's up in the last month. That's up from about a hundred and twenty-two, I think. So that's wow. quite, you know, that's quite a jump. Yes. Yeah, so how does that, how do we, this is just another cross current that's very difficult for me to, to square up because, you know, you have this, this, uh, mighty propaganda effort to say we're just, that's it, we're just swimming in oil now, but then you see over $100 a barrel on the world stage and, and then you, you hear about these massive money printing efforts and, and you see gold going down as a consequence of that. You see, the Federal Reserve, like you see all these official government statistics saying positive GDP growth, improving unemployment conditions, uh, housing recovery. That's the, all the stories are out there. And then the Fed wanders out and says, oh no, we have no plans anytime soon to stop this, you know, historic money printing effort because, because conditions are just too dire. So, so. That's something I wanted to ask you actually about the housing thing. I mean, this is a mystery to me, Chris, and I don't know if you can answer the question. As I understand it, the cost of mortgages in America has gone up significantly. Mm-hmm. As I understand it, house prices have also risen significantly. So someone, let us say, uh, taking out an 80% mortgage to buy a property has seen the cost of that mortgage in terms of monthly salary deductions rise by something like 50%. How can it be under those circumstances that these house price rises are real? Well, I, I can explain this a little bit. Uh, so it turns out that, that the house price rises come from the Case-Shiller, either a composite 10 or composite 20, which either tracks 10 cities or 20 cities. And most people track the composite 20, and most of the cities that it's tracking, many of those went through a pretty severe bubble. So Phoenix is in there, Miami is in there, Las Vegas is in there. And these places had this huge overshoot, and then they had this huge um, undercorrection. And in all of those key markets, Atlanta as well, we find that that big private equity firms and even the banks themselves now are stepping in and just buying huge swaths of homes, like hundreds if not thousands at a pop. And they're paying top dollar for these things. And they're creating a lot of demand. So I've had lots of stories and anecdotes from people who are trying to buy houses in those markets. You, You have a careful payment that you can sort of negotiate uh, you, you, you go through a bidding process on the house and somebody swoops in, does an all cash, no contingency offer, they get the, they get the house. Uh, and right. so, so what, 
what are, what are these institutions doing? Are they letting them out or something or what? Yes, that's the idea. They're going to let them out and then they're going to hopefully make a capital appreciation and, and sell them off again. So they've uh, Blackstone's a big one. They actually st- stood up a whole second LLC or, or limited partnership, or I can't remember which, but some other separate company that's now going to be in the mortgage. It's basically going to be in the landlord business, right? You know. How incredible. Well, so this is, um, I'm not quite sure what to make of this, but it doesn't smell all that good to me on the basis that we're not actually seeing genuine demand. We are seeing um, perhaps all that inflation money, which is just drilling around the system, trying to find yet another asset, asset to escape into. Well, I actually have a darker spin on this than that, which is that what we had was a financial crisis largely engineered by the players who should have known better. And what they were assuming was that when they got in trouble, they'd get bailed out, and they did. And not only are banks turning in record earnings now, really on the basis of this money that's been handed to them by the Fed, but they turned in record earnings in 2009 and 10, you know, like like just like they, they've, they've, they kept all their profits on the run-up, and then they got made whole, and now they're making record profits on, on the bailout on the back end of it as well. And all of this printed money is now finding its way into things and is now competing with ordinary people for the basics of life, like a place to live. And so, yeah. and so what it turns out is that um, what we're seeing is one of the largest transfers of ownership that we've ever seen. Money printed out of thin air, handed to a few very large, well-connected players, used to buy real things from real people. It's an extraordinary story. Yeah, no, it is. It is. Now, how is it that no politicians, like this sounds, I mean, I could imagine getting swept into office on a populist platform. I'm still mystified as to what happens that nobody in either party, nobody at any party is is, uh, towing, is putting that story out in my country yet. Well, that's, uh, that's, that is an interesting one. Um, I'm not, yes, it, that is interesting. I mean, the whole, the whole of your housing uh, business seems to me to be in a bit of a mess anyway, because you, you know, the mortgage industry is completely nationalized. Sorry, that's an old-fashioned socialist term. I would draw that. <laughs> <laughs> Rescued. <laughs> but not out of rescue yet. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, so you've, you've really got huge distortions. You've not only got the monetary distortions, but you've got the systemic distortions of the ownership of um, Fannie and Freddie. And what's interesting, actually, I'm changing the topic slightly, um, but if you go to Spain, property prices have not fallen as much as they have in America, but properties are not being sold. They're not being sold because there are no buyers. So it is completely artificial. So they're propping up the market, um, while perhaps uh, all the money that's being printed in America isn't, you know, is sort of going into the market. So you've got that sort of contrast. But you wouldn't believe the number of empty properties in Spain. It is just absolutely staggering, which tells me the whole of that property market is completely mispriced. It should be half what it is. Mm-hmm. It should fall to a level where the property clears. And that is a lot, lot lower than here. But of course, if they do that... You know, the banks are, well, I mean, the banks are a bust anyway, but uh, you know, the, the, the bankruptcies go beyond Bankia, which is the main uh, house lending business, uh, and uh, I think into the other banks. So that's why they're just trying desperately to, to pretend the property prices are where they are. Do you think there's an element of that going on in, in, in the States with um, institutional money going into properties, trying to engineer, if you like, the sort of... Um, atmosphere of recovery that because property prices are going up there's more confidence and so on and so forth do you think that's the sort of game plan that perhaps the fed has 
Absolutely. So one of the things the Fed's had difficulty doing is directly intervening in the housing market uh, because that's an asset class they can't really buy. So so they indirectly intervene by driving mortgage interest rates down, which has a price supportive effect for people who are buying. But that apparently uh, wasn't good enough. And so we have direct evidence now of banks that were holding the loans of houses that were going into foreclosure, then turning around and bidding on those same homes, in some cases for uh, uh, prices vastly above the actual offered market price. We, we saw that case happen down in Miami recently. So, so we're seeing some of that direct bit. And it, so think about it. If, think about it. So if you're a bank and you've made a mortgage and the house goes under and, and the mortgage goes under and now you have to sell the house and you can, one of two things happens. You sell it to the open market and it goes off at a price where you take a loss. And now you have to write that loss on your books or you step into that same market and buy it from yourself, I think, at a higher price than otherwise uh, would have been. Ha- would have been. And guess what happens? How much of a loss do you have to book now? Well, none if you paid enough. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, this is, yeah, it's, it, there's more or less what the banks are doing in Spain as well. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's just a way to avoid having to uh, take the loss, even though the loss is still there. It doesn't go away. You've just overpaid for a house. Uh, yeah. eventually you're going to have to clear that off. But the strategy, if I can use that word very loosely, is to do that and then hope that the rest of the housing market comes along and recovers and you can uh, quietly sell that back into the market and slink away from that deal. But that that is the strategy such as it is. But if it sounds like a hokey game to you, it, it, we have uh, we share that view. Yeah, uh, oh, it, it, it certainly does. Um, slightly different subject. Um, I've been trying to get people to understand that when you look at the gold price, you shouldn't just look at the quantity of gold, uh, which obviously is, is, is a factor in the price, but you also ought to look at the quantity of dollars. And I have calculated using true money supply plus excess reserves. Now, the, the rationale for using um, uh, that measure of money supply is quite simple. In the days when you had gold convertibility, full convertibility, people were able to convert their paper cash, their uh, savings accounts, their uh, checking accounts, and also the banks which deposited gold at the Fed with their excess reserves were able to take it out in return for paper money. So, um, you know, really what we're talking about is the the correct dollar equivalent of um, the measure, if you like, against which the price of gold should be judged. So if you adjust the price of gold for the quantity of gold that has increased since the year 2000 and for the quantity of true money supply plus excess reserve dollars that has increased since the year 2000, guess what? The gold price has gone up 39%, not 350%, which the nominal price um, implies. Now, I think if we can get people thinking and understanding that, it would actually give a lot more context to what the value of gold should be. Interesting. But I don't see anyone looking at it this way. So, you know, here I'm hoping that we will get a little bit of a campaign get, um, going to get people to look at this the right way. What do you think, Chris? Well, I, I think that's very useful. And, and the other fundamental driver that I've been uh, keeping a close eye on is, is just how much gold is flowing. It seems that there's some weird... Currents going on in the gold market now with uh, 
with the gold offered forward rate uh, dipping into the negative territory, very perverse. I, I've never seen that condition at this level. And noting that the, the Shanghai, uh, the, the gold exchange in uh, in Hong Kong, uh, going yep. through Shanghai, I believe, is uh, noting uh, something like 1,100 tons in the first half of the year, which is just an extraordinary volume. Uh, so, so we're seeing, I, th- I think the volumes that, that do exist have to be adjusted against uh, those dollars, but but we have to look at where the gold is because I consider once gold goes into India and China, it's probably not coming back out again. I think it's sort of a roach motel for gold, gone and there it is and stays right. <laughs> and uh, and and so so those are very strong hands. And so you know we have we have that plus the idea that as far as I can tell, the South African miners are just absolutely uh, you know underwater at this point. They have very very low um, margin mines down there in, in the best of cases, but it. $1,270 an ounce, uh, they're actually losing. Uh, they yeah, can't no, operate right. for long. I, 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 no, I, I go along with that entirely. There is another aspect of um, this, the, sort of the overall supply situation, and that is that the Chinese and I believe the Russians don't let any of the gold mined in their territories out into, the, into open markets or free markets. Consequently, the imports that you see going through Hong Kong, the figures that you see on the Shanghai Gold Exchange, are actually uh, nothing to do with the 400-odd tons a year that come out of, that are being mined in China and being spirited away by the government. Um, the, I can't remember how much there is mined in Russia. But that's also true of all the um, ex-communist states between uh, Russia and China, you know, the various stars, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and all the rest of them. None of that gold is coming out. So the true supply in the West of newly mined gold is in the order of 2,000 tons, not 2,700 tons. There is also another aspect to this, and that is that the amount of gold that is being recycled from scrap in the West is probably now below 500 tons a year, because that has fallen off. And so you can see that one of the reasons there is so much strain in the market is that having hit the price, got the price down, and generated a lot of demand for physical, there is not enough supply coming in to make up for that. I believe the central banks have been forced to sell into the market to keep the price down. And consequently, there are now huge shortages in the market. And this is why we've got negative gold forward rates. And this is why we seem to be having delivery strains on COMEX. It actually is a very, very serious situation. And the other thing, I, you know that the um, managed money category uh, is in, with record short positions. What those guys don't realize is that they are now the only speculators in town. The, the, the longs, basically, have suffered all the margin calls. So they are long-term. They're not going to get shaken up by lower prices. The bullion banks like, you know, the, the, the big banks that make the market in COMEX, have now closed their positions down, and if anything, are net long. So the only speculators in town are the hedge fund managers who think they've been very clever spotting a downtrend in gold and thinking that gold is going to go down, therefore we'll short it. And when you've got only one class of uh, speculator in the game, you have got no one to sell them the stock back when they want to close their positions. This could be very explosive, Chris. I I agree it could be. We've I've been waiting for such a, an event for a very long time. I, I do 
note that uh, I, I see the kind of manipulation I see in the gold market. I see it in other markets too. Uh, if I, but I have to follow them very closely. So I, if I follow individual equities, certain commodities, gold, silver, and um, I'm following this on a tick by tick basis, I can watch these these dump moments come in. And, and just to make it crystal clear, so you know, if, if I see. Uh, 3,200 large gold contracts get sold in a single two-minute window in the middle of the night. Uh, I know something's wrong because nobody who had that volume, I mean, it's an extraordinary volume of of paper contracts. If you had those and you wanted to get out of those, you would never pick that moment in that time to get out in any sort of sane, responsible way. So there's only one conclusion. There is only one. And that is that somebody is doing that with the intention of driving the price down. By definition, that's manipulation. The SEC yep. ought to be looking into it. They should at least pretend and look into it and say, we didn't see anything there, but they are absolutely completely mute on it. The CFTC is completely mute on it. There's absolutely no looking into what is patently, obviously manipulative behavior. And I think it's just people who've learned they can make money doing that, right? That's that's what they yep. do. But the official support for that comes in because the officials don't look, don't choose not to investigate it. So it's a little wink, you know? Yeah. Well, the, I think the official support really is at two levels. Um, I think, firstly, uh, there has been a deliberate attempt by governments, the Western governments, to get the bullion banks out of a very short and dangerous situation. And this became very obvious in the wake of Cyprus because... Mm-hmm. Certainly in Europe, and this is anecdotal evidence that I have, um, you know, that there were enough people who got worried about having deposit accounts with the banks that some of them were turning around to their banks and saying, you know, where they had gold accounts, I don't want to have this gold account with you. I want you to, deli- to deliver the metal. And as we know, one of the banks, ABN AMRO, uh, had to write to his customers and say, sorry, we can't deliver metal anymore. So... There was, there was that shortage, and I think that if you look at the underlying demand from places like uh, China and India, and bearing in mind that uh, China, Russia, and most of Asia were withholding their gold and are still withholding their gold production from the market, um, there were big shortages being developed, and the only way that demand could be satisfied is for the Western central banks to provide the gold either through uh, paper gold in the markets or by actually leasing it. And I think that there has been, um, well, in fact, I mean, the only way the numbers add up is that there has been the supply of gold. So there really, I think, those two motives. The one is to ensure that the bullion banks get themselves out of this very nasty short position. And the other is, um, you know, they, they have tried to keep the price down while that's been happening, while at the same time they are printing record, record amounts of money. And it's quite clear, if you go back to a chart of true money supply, that's um, cash, checking accounts, plus savings accounts, add in excess reserves, if you like, my gold comparator, um, then we are in hyperinflation, monetary hyperinflation. In order to get that curve back to an exponential growth line, they need to withdraw trillion dollars from the U.S. economy. I don't see it. Oh, that'll never happen. No. And and I guess the the theme I'm working with is that everything's fine until it's not. Right? It, it's uh, and I'm just I'm amazed at how long they've been able to just keep everything uh, sort of poking along and 
stock markets hitting record highs, even even without a, a, a really strong case underneath that that you would normally rely on. So this is just a a full on speculators market at this point in time, and and I guess that's I guess that's okay. Uh, th- th- these things happen, but the risks in there are just really quite extraordinary, and and I'm ever more nervous that. We have yet another bubble. This one's the biggest one I've ever seen. It, it defies any sort of description. And all bubbles, uh, they're just ever ceaselessly in search of a pin. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And I think that, I mean, it's rather like sitting on a volcano. You know, it's sort of the pressure's building and building and building. And when it blows, it's going to be quite spectacular, which is very unfortunate because we all get hurt under those circumstances. It's not just a question of um, trading and protecting yourself or whatever. It's going to really be, I think, very, very bad for everyone. And with that, Alistair, I really want to thank you for your time on this off-the-cuff today. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's been very much my pleasure, Chris.